This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Soon Wiley, author of the novel When We Fell Apart. When I was looking back on kind of some of my my favorite literary characters, they're all struggling with where do they kind of belong and where do they fit in and how do they kind of make their make their way in the world. We'll be back with Soon Wiley after these essential words. Hey, listener, guess what? This episode, if you're listening to it on the day it goes live, is airing on the exact date of the ninth anniversary of First Draft. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years, delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show. And it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is fiction writer Soon Wiley, whose debut novel is called When We Fell Apart. Wiley received his BA in English and Philosophy from Connecticut College and his MFA in Creative Writing from Wichita State University. 
His writing has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and earned him fellowships in Wyoming and France. When We Fell Apart is set in Seoul, South Korea, and interweaves the story of Yujin, a beautiful Korean woman from a powerful political family, and Min, a biracial Korean-American who moves to Korea to find himself. At the novel's opening, Min's girlfriend, Yujin, is found dead in her bedroom by an apparent suicide. Min goes on a quest to understand the woman he loved, and Yujin's story is the slow unfolding of what led to her death while attending a prestigious university. This interview does contain spoilers about the novel When We Fell Apart, specifically in reference to Yujin's character. We began the discussion with Soon Wiley talking about his experience writing a novel for the first time. It took me about seven years total to write this book. I started it in 2014. Uh, I had just kind of graduated from my MFA program. I had moved to DC uh, and I was, that was my first teaching gig. I was teaching at a high school there. I had never tried writing novels, but my short stories were always problematically long. Um, I, I would end up with these 20 to 30, sometimes 40 page short stories, which my instructors were very quick to point out were not very short. Um, and so I had graduated and I had kind of thought, you know, maybe I should take a crack at writing a novel. And at the time I'd been reading a lot of Haruki Murakami and Kazuo Ishiguro and, um, I just, I, I don't know what it was. I mean, I, I'd read some of their stuff before, but it occurred to me that the reason, one of the reasons I liked their work was because they had a, a kind of a mystery at the heart of a lot of their books. Sometimes it was a big mystery. Other times it was very small and inconsequential. Um, but that was something that was kind of an initial kernel of, of a realization of how to plot a novel and how to actually write something that might be three to 400 pages long, which is pretty daunting. Um, and so I basically just started writing. I had this character, this protagonist, uh, named Min. I knew that he was going to be living in Seoul, South Korea. And I knew that his girlfriend had died under kind of mysterious circumstances. And that was it pretty much. And I just kind of went from there. I, I, I really didn't have a plan, uh, which in hindsight, I wish I had, cause it would have made editing and revision a lot easier. But, um, you know, I, I went from there and basically the, you know, the book itself, I, I would say probably took four to five years. And then, you know, the next two years were kind of really heavy revisions and, and editing. So the basic story is you have your main character, Min, and he grew up in L.A. and he's half Korean, half total white bread, Mayflower, blonde hair, blue eyed guy who never really felt like he quite belonged. And so he felt like if he went to Seoul in Korea, that he would maybe find his place in the world. And he works for Samsung basically educating them on American culture. So when they come over to do business, they are versed in America, which there's a lot to talk about there. And he has this girlfriend, Eugene, and she is very motivated, intelligent, goes to a great all-women's university, worked her whole life to get there, has very, her, she has a, her father is basically the minister of defense for the country very um, high achieving and that was expected of her. But when she goes to university and moves to Seoul, which is away from the, the, the town where she grew up and sort of her, uh, her idea of, of salvation and freedom was to move to the big city. She gets paired up with a, a roommate named Sora. So Sora and her become fast friends. They're so close and they end up entangled romantically. And that is totally taboo for her family, for the culture. And at the same time, she dates Min. So she, but Min doesn't know. So she has this double life and the book opens upon her death where it's maybe being investigated. Well, it is being investigated by as a crime scene potentially, but also 
they're pretty sure that she committed suicide. It goes back and forth between Eugene's chapter and Min's chapters. He's trying to excavate the past, their relationship, and what he knows about the present to find what really happened to her. And her story is more her story from high school getting to this moment and her experiences. And it's so much about belonging and finding yourself. I, I think you probably did a better a better job of explaining it than I did. <laughs> right. And then, then I that I could. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, my first question about Min is you open up the scene where the book where he is playing rugby and he's after rugby, he's walking through the city and you're describing the lights and the chaos and you use this word obliteration. I was thinking about how I think he wanted to feel that sense of obliteration and how a city like that with so many bright lights and so much going on is obliteration. And I don't think he was going there to totally lose himself. He was going there to find himself. But I just wanted to ask you about this concept of obliteration and uh, if you could talk more about Min's character. You know, so I, I lived in Seoul for a year after I graduated from college. I was teaching English there. And that was way back in 2009. And I, I didn't actually start writing the book until about five years after I returned. And of course, I didn't take any notes when I was there. I wasn't thinking that I would write a book um, set there. Um, but Seoul is is kind of, it is so big. There are so many people. There's so much going on um, that it, there is a kind of real saturation of the senses where you almost kind of don't know where to look, what to do, um, what to pay attention to. You know, and I, I think, of course, places like New York and, and Los Angeles, and I don't know, I'm sure I'm leaving out some other wonderful international cities. Um, but for me, Seoul, and, and I think for Min also, it has this kind of overwhelming sense of presence, right? That I think something that you had just touched on, it can allow you to either kind of find yourself, find some aspect of yourself, but also lose an aspect of yourself in the hopes of finding yourself. So in the book, there are a lot of characters that are in soul for various reasons, right? Some of them are there to pursue their artistic endeavors. Some of them like Eugene are there to kind of finally enter what they see as kind of like adulthood. They're getting out of their parents, you know, house. They finally get to kind of live the life that they want to live. Um, and for men, when he arrives, I think he's he's hoping for something. He also isn't really sure what it is he's hoping for and, and what he wants to find. And Sol, I think, offers up a couple of conundrums, right? To him, it at times he feels like he belongs. At other times, he feels, uh, to use the word that you had highlighted, like obliterated, right? Where he isn't quite sure what he's doing there and what he's supposed to do, but he suspects that there might be some sense of greater belonging uh, in Seoul than where he was previously, which was in New York and then where he grew up in, in L.A. So much of this book is about identity. Where does it come from? Who or what can give it to you? And this sense of belonging, like belonging is not something that you can just claim like someone else can't give you belonging like here you go here's belonging I'm <laughs> handing it to you on a silver platter it comes from within and so it's a rich territory for a character me and I have some shared experience for sure right so I'm I'm also biracial I'm also uh, half Korean I'm Korean American I think what you had said right so belonging is something that is cultivated within and I think that's probably a lesson and a truth that that every character either accepts or kind of tragically comes to realize by the end of the book, right? That belonging isn't something that you can just kind of find by going to another country or by returning to a country where, you know, you have shared heritage. Similarly, right, belonging, it can't be given to you if you don't belong in a specific social circle or a, a specific socioeconomic class or in the case of, of Eugene, certain kind of cultural expectations when it comes to kind of academic and professional goals. I was interested in belonging kind of the broadest sense and, and how belonging kind of touches. I think you had said it's rich territory. 
And I think it is because it kind of, it's one of those things that transcends race, class, gender, that when I was looking back on kind of some of my, my favorite literary characters, they're all struggling with where do they kind of belong and where do they fit in and how do they kind of make their, make their way in the world. And I think probably, I mean, the novel isn't, uh, I think in some ways it's a coming of age novel, but I, I think some of my favorite coming of age novels, you know, they're always kind of delving into those questions of if I don't belong, how do I cultivate it in myself? And, and more than not, there are also people who are kind of actively working to make you feel as if you don't belong, right? Which is also kind of where you you get some wonderful kind of antagonists and plot lines in great novels. Um, so for me, it it really was. I don't think that I was, to be honest, I, I don't think I was aware. It, it's not as if I sat down and said, okay, one of the themes of the novel is going to be belonging. But when I finished the book and I had done some revisions and, and really kind of thought about it, it became apparent after reading what I had written that belonging was one of the things that I was very kind of interested in as a writer. Did you have any of those experiences of questioning belonging when you were in Seoul? I'm fourth generation, so I don't speak Korean. My mom doesn't speak Korean. And so for me, going back, you know, in the States, I'm, I was very much viewed, am very much viewed as Asian, I suppose, or, or certainly not white. But in Korea, there's very much a sense of like, you're American, right? And so cultural, I would say the cultural significance almost trumps the ethnic significance. So in America, we are like very interested in like, what is your ethnicity, right? Like, what are you or, or what is your background is often a question, right? That And as Americans, I think that makes sense, right? We're a country of immigrants. So people will say, I'm Irish or I'm Scottish or I'm Danish or I'm, you know, all of these things, which is just kind of funny if you really think about it. But in Korea, even though I was, you know, technically, ethnically half Korean, there was no, no one was ever going to actually take that at face value, right? They're like, no, you're American, right? You grew up in America. You don't look Korean. You don't act Korean. You don't speak Korean. And so certainly I think, and Min, I think experiences some of this as well. Um, the realization that this place that you thought might offer you this easy sense of belonging, it isn't actually so easy. And, and I think that's a very, common experience that um, folks of color have, right? Whether they're first generation or second generation immigrants of going back to their, you know, the mother country and maybe naively hoping, right? That it's all going to click into place. I'm finally going to feel like I fit in the world and everything makes sense. And pretty much, of course, every time it, it never quite works that way. And there's always going to be someone that is kind of very, very quickly uh, and very happily going to tell you, right, that you actually don't belong here and you actually aren't. And again, I, I don't, it was never in a, at least for me, it was never in a malicious sense or in a sense of to make you feel bad, but it was just an acknowledgement of how the culture sees, sees people. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, just the, the very common experience of even just walking down the street, you know, you're, you're taller than most people, people are going to look at you and point at you. And I was backpacking, this wasn't in Korea, but I, when I was there, I took a vacation to Cambodia and I was backpacking there. And I remember this Korean tour bus like stopped next. I was walking on the side of the road and this Korean tour bus stopped and they all got off and wanted to just take photos of me with me because I was just tall. Um, I mean, that's a lot of, I think, white people have that experience when they go to Asia. Um, but for me, it felt weird because I was like, well, I'm not not all white, right? Like there's a part of me that, you know, there's some shared heritage here, but I was very much viewed as, you know, an American, right? And and there that was kind of undeniable, um, which, you know, was, was I, I, it shouldn't have been surprising to me, but it was. I think it's so fascinating. And I've just been thinking about the concept of belonging on my own lately. 
most of my family is from Russia and I would not go to Russia and feel kinship with borscht and the food they eat. I would be miserable. But if I went to Japan, I would be like so happy. So you could feel some sense of home maybe with food and things like that, but it's really, people have to offer it to you and your experience depends on who you're surrounded by. And if the 20 people that you work with are around when you go to Korea who embrace you and love you and accept you in a certain way, then you feel belonging. And it's so random on who you meet. It's kind of like the way that Eugene felt belonging with her roommate, Sora, because her roommate loved her and accepted her and they created this kinship. And that could have happened in, in Nairobi. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that that's really true. And in a lot of ways, I think means and I, I don't think I'm giving away anything here, but there's a part of his journey that is is certainly flawed in the beginning. You know, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I think I remember traveling abroad for the first time and going to different countries and this this feeling of being in a foreign place and being around strangers. It's really intoxicating and it can give you this, I don't know if it's a false sense, but you're still the same person when you go to a new country. You still got all the same problems. You still got all your neuroses and your issues. You just happen to be surrounded by different people um, and a different culture. So I think for me and he, you know, and again, perhaps a little naively thinks, well, if I don't fit in America, you know, maybe I can fit over, over here. And I, I don't think that doesn't mean it's worth not worthwhile his, his journey, but I do think he kind of miscalculates how he's going to fit in and how he's going to be received. And sometimes you might find that, like I'm thinking about that guy, the redheaded character in Love Actually, who thinks he's going to make it big when he goes to America with all the women and he goes to Wisconsin and yes, he just... the bar in Milwaukee. Oh my gosh, he hits it so hard and he scores. I love Love Actually. It's a great movie. That moment to me is also quite funny just because it's so quintessentially, you know, it's just such a cliche of the of the British guy just being incredibly attractive to everyone for his accent. Which in a way is sort of like so reductionist, but that's Min's job is that that's what he's doing in Samsung. He's trying to teach his co-workers about America so that when they get there, they they will know what to talk about. And he is really explaining the complexities of race and beauty. That's something that you say and that he is teaching them about the biggest loser and how and they you know, they're like Americans just love weight loss. And he's teaching them about The Bachelor. And he's also trying to explain kind of the nuances of different parts of the country that in in L.A in California people are more free and they're more open with their sexuality and it's like very but it's taken also literally by most of the people he's working with so they're like okay like I have to have bleach blonde hair to fit in in America or I have this concept of beauty or I don't understand the nuances you're blowing my mind with that and I just wanted to ask you about this part about He's trying to reduce where he comes from and teach people about our country and how that makes you look at our country, like how that made you look at our country as the writer. Yeah. So the, you know, Min's, Min's job, I, I don't think is real. I think I made it up. I didn't find it anywhere that I looked on any job boards. But, you know, that part of the book was in, in earlier drafts was like numerous chapters, like chapters upon chapters. I, I love the concept of, of someone having to like explain the most reductive through the most reductive lens, right. Of, of media and reality television, but explaining these really kind of important and complex topics like race and beauty and sexuality. But in a lot of ways, I actually think those shows are probably a more accurate description of, of where we are as a country, right? Then we would probably like to think that The Bachelor isn't a good example of, of kind of what we value, but I, I suspect that it probably is. I like the idea of using Min and using his job as a lens almost, I think, for readers 
American readers to see how their culture might be viewed from another perspective. And this is a very kind of minor craft point, but by doing that, it also allowed me to highlight some of the differences in Korean culture. So LGBTQ issues or issues of aesthetics. So rather than having to kind of explain those things, those nuances, like a textbook, I could kind of use the characters and their reaction to Min's kind of lessons on American culture as a way to inform the reader of like, well, here's how Koreans kind of view, right, beauty. Here's how they view sexuality. And I don't know. I, I I really loved writing those chapters. So a lot of it got cut. I mean, it's it's a pretty short part of the book. But for me, it was a lot of fun, actually, to kind of, you know, satirize and lampoon reality TV. I mean, who doesn't love to do that? Well, it's also very potent. You don't I can see why you cut that out because you don't have to say a lot to get your point across. Yeah, that's true. You said earlier that you love coming of age stories and that this in a way is a coming of age story, sort of. What are some of the coming of age stories that you love? When I was younger, I used to read all the Hardy Boy books, the Nancy Drews, the Hardy Boys. And to me, that felt like a a perpetual coming of age story almost. But, you know, I was an English teacher, so Catcher in the Rye. um, And and I'm I'm probably going to name a a bunch that aren't technically coming of age, but... um, of Human Bondage by Somerset Maugham is one of my favorite uh, coming of ages, which is like an 800 page book that no one reads anymore. I actually don't know why he fell out of the canon. You know, again, it's probably not a coming of age, but to me, Gatsby is very much a, a kind of Nick losing his innocence and kind of realizing what the world is really about. Those are kind of two of my two of my kind of all timers. So I want to talk about Eugen and As I mentioned earlier, she came from this very high achieving family, although I think you're also saying a lot about the culture in Korea, not just her family, because she's surrounded by people that are studying so hard for these, I think they're called the CSATs to Mm -hmm. get into university. And I mean, people are like throwing up before they have to go in the room to take them. And she's basically sworn off all real friendships and fun um, through her high school career so that she can get out and get to this university, this prestigious university. Can you talk a little bit about where Eugen came from for you? Because you had said when you started it, you saw Min and you knew that this, this girlfriend was dead, but that's all you knew at first. So how did she start coming into view? And when she did, what was important for you to imbue her with the the process of writing this book was i i mean maybe normal i don't know i I have no reference point but i initially wrote my first ever draft of the book was only from min's perspective um and it was also from first person and in the current version he his chapters are in third person um and so the first draft of the book it was in first person it was all from min's perspective Eugene was present in the novel. Um, All the plot points were the same. She had died and Min was kind of trying to discover things. But I finished that draft and that was maybe, I don't know, a year and a half or two years. And it became apparent that I needed her point of view, um, that I was kind of missing something. Um, And while Min's narrative was interesting, it just wasn't, and she was still a very prominent character. We just never got her thoughts. So I decided to start writing from her perspective. And so I put what I now was thinking of as Min's book. I put that book away. And then I just started writing Eugene's chapters, essentially Eugene's book. And I wrote from her perspective in first person. And as I was writing her chapters, I kind of mentally was thinking about where they would fit in Min's chapters. I knew that I wanted them to alternate, but I didn't really kind of hold myself to any type of um, real kind of technicalities there. And her her chapters were um, bizarre to bizarrely to me, infinitely easier to write. Um, I wrote them much more quickly. Um, I think it took me, it took me under a year to write her chapters. And there was something about her chapters. The voice to me felt incredibly propulsive 
And I, I, I didn't really question it. It's something like when something's going well, you don't want to kind of <laughs> bother yourself too much about why you just want to go with it. And I think that was for two reasons. So one, I think because she had been this character in the book that I had been working on and I had been thinking about her. And, and even though I hadn't written from her perspective, she was still a very much fully formed character in my head. I knew her backstory. I had written it all down. It just hadn't made it into the book. And so that was one reason, I think, why it was so easy to write her sections. Um, and the other reason was, you know, my shared experience with Min, as we kind of talked about, is kind of a little bit closer, right? Whereas Eugene, her upbringing and her character and her life is something totally kind of alien to me. And so I really kind of imaginatively delved into her character and kind of her, her upbringing. And I don't, I don't know, you know, it's kind of this alchemy that happens when you write, this is probably a deeply unsatisfying answer, but I knew that she came from this family that had incredibly high standards. And I knew that she was growing up in a culture that was a pressure cooker and her story just kind of unfolded and that type of pressure and the desire to succeed and also the pressure to succeed was something that just kind of intuitively came out of kind of her character and also from her voice. When I started writing her voice, it became apparent that her chapters were this kind of unburdening almost, or a confession of sorts of while Min is kind of searching for answers, Eugene is kind of unraveling or peeling back the onion skins, right? To kind of let the reader in. You mentioned that after you finished the first draft, she wasn't even in there and it became apparent to you that she needed to be. How did that become apparent to you? As I was writing it, I had an inkling that I have this male character who finds himself, kind of comes of age, figures his life out, and he can do that because his girlfriend dies. And he almost, I think, it, if we were reading it uncharitably, uses his girlfriend's death and the quest for the truth as a way to figure out his own problems, which when you put it that way, feels a little bit, I don't know, problematic, I would say. I remember I was teaching Haruki Murakami's Norwegian Wood, and I had a student say, you know, I'm just sick of like this guy who's just dating women to figure himself out. Like, this is boring. And that comment really stuck with me. It's one of my favorite novels, but I thought it was a fair point. And so I felt like I owed it to her at least to give it a shot, to give her a voice. And especially because she is dead at the beginning of the book. I felt like what better way to give her agency than to give her her own point of view and her own voice and her own story. And so that she isn't just a plot point, essentially, right? That That is then used to kind of help men figure out his life. You teach high school English and you're just mentioning a student that challenged this book in a, in a way that had ripple effects on you. And I'm wondering how that does interact with your writing in general. And then after, like, do your kids read your book and tell you what they think? Yeah, I was just at a reading in DC and and I did have some students, they had read the book and, and so they were talking about it, um, which was great. You know, a lot of writing is, is theft, is stealing. And I think probably, you know, I was really blessed. I worked at the same school for seven years and I taught the same books for seven years and I taught British literature and American literature. And I got to teach, I mean, I got to teach the Scarlet Letter seven years in a row. I got to teach jazz seven years in a row, Beowulf, Macbeth. I mean, these are books that are just incredible. And specifically, I think for me, it dawned on me that I was teaching these works of literature and I was viewing them as such, but that they're also mysteries, right? So we don't read The Great Gatsby like it's a mystery, but it is, right? Like, who is Gatsby? Who's this guy? And the whole book is, we're all trying to figure out who he is. Um, but of course, you know, I was an English major and we don't, that's not like what you talk about when you read The Great Gatsby or The Scarlet Letter, right? The whole first half of the book is trying to figure out who, who is Pearl's father, right? Who, and, and you know, Hawthorne probably doesn't do a great job of hiding the identity, but that's not really the point. But I, at some point, it really dawned on me that all of these books that we view as kind of stuffy, literary, highbrow stuff are using the same kind of 
techniques that that genre work is using. So that was really something that I I you know I stole, and I, I thought it gave me the confidence to write a book that I hope kind of marries literature and and kind of what we view as more kind of genre mystery suspense stuff. So as we learn more about Eugene and we follow her on her journey to college, to her relationship with Sora. Zora was, she had a lot of agency in her life. She didn't care what other people thought. I mean, obviously she was intelligent because she got into this very esteemed university. She was a dance major. She wanted to get out of Korea completely. And they just bonded and slowly formed a romantic relationship. And really, I think Zora was a big catalyst for Eugen to find her own voice eventually, not not a hundred percent like she knew where the boundaries were with her family, but she was also very aware of the culture that she lived in, in the sense that there was a stigma with homosexuality that they were, she knew like there were no laws in Seoul that could protect him. Like no, no legal acknowledgement. Right. Of, discriminatory laws or anything like that. Yeah. And so did you know that she was going to end up being in love and have a romantic relationship with her female roommate? And again, it's just like so much to understand about the culture. I don't know if you had to go back and do more research about that. I, I knew early on that it that it was going to be that sexuality was going to play a kind of a, a large role in in kind of the novel. When I lived there, I, I didn't think anything of it. Right. I mean, I'm straight. I wasn't in that world at all. I didn't have any uh, queer friends. I knew you know, the neighborhoods that are mentioned in the novel, I've, I was, I've been to those neighborhoods, I saw them, I didn't really think much of them. But when I'm writing, I'm always kind of willing to follow my characters wherever they're going. And that was, that was certainly something where a character took me to a place, and I was surprised. Um, and then as a writer, you kind of have to grapple with that, are you going to run with it? And if you do, it's probably going to cause all these other headaches for you craft headaches. And yes, I definitely had to not not so much go back and do my research because I, I was pretty familiar with stuff, but I had to go back and talk to a few people in order to figure out the best way to explain to an American audience how Koreans and how Korea views LGBTQ issues. And I think that's that was kind of really where I where I had to kind of think quite hard. There were a lot of hours spent editing those, those lines. It's almost, and you know, you can't really compare Korean and America. It's just like impossible. Korea is basically the size of, you know, Wisconsin. Um, but Koreans are incredibly accepting, but to your earlier point, there aren't kind of these, these kind of laws that are on the books, so to speak. Things are changing, obviously, and there are kind of there's more visibility, but they don't have the same laws as we have. Although I think you could probably say that there are uh, LGBTQ plus people who might feel more comfortable in Korea than in probably, I don't know, 15 to 20 of the states in our own country. So it's this weird kind of dissonance where they don't have specific laws and there is kind of real uh, there are real issues with that. But then because Korea is you know, quite safe just in general, right? That, that you're not going to experience kind of discrimination or like a violent threat towards your life in almost any situation. I mean, I think this is still the case, but in Korea, all the police, the first bullet is a blank, which is just the most incredible thing to, if you tell an American that it probably blows their mind. What's interesting. And I don't know if you saw it that way, or if it's something that you look at later, that what really opened up Eugen was the arts and humanities that, you know, she had very strict boundaries. I mean, her parents let her go to the school and live in the dorm, but her dad dictated what she had to study. And for her, like the risk of falling for Sora was so huge, but Sora was a dancer and she was definitely on the artistic side of things. And the other thing that really opened Eugen up was that she audited a film class towards the end of school 
And the first movie she saw was Tokyo Story. And it's so simple and so emotional at the same time. And her plunging into the arts really allowed her to sort of accept contradictions and realize that her opinions matter and find her agency, even if it had to be secret from her parents and she wasn't sure where her life would lead. And I don't know if you purposely realized that it was kind of the arts and humanities that opened her, but I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I I, I think, you know, as writers, we're always or at least I, I shouldn't say everyone, but I suspect most writers were always trying to, find, trying to find ways to write about the things that we're interested in, you know, and I think we're, we're often writing about things that we're interested in. But for me, you know, I, I've always been fascinated by film and I, I was interested in the idea of the arts almost being this, this drug in a way. Right. And uh, you had mentioned the film class, the film class, Tokyo story. That's that's the gateway drug. She gets hooked after that. And once she sees that film and once she realizes what it's like to to look at a piece of art or to experience a piece of art, she kind of can't get enough. Right. And it's it gives her existence this kind of texture and color that she's never had before. And that, of course, pairs pairs with Sora and pairs with kind of this this rebirth that she kind of experiences in soul. I, I love the idea of, of art being transgressive in that way and of, of it being a real danger. Right. And that, that books and film and, you know, there's also some sculpture in the, in the book as well, that all of those things, I think while a lot of people find meaning in them, I think other people see danger, right. And, and a threat because, you know, you never know what someone's going to start thinking or believing after they read a book. It, it can be, I think, dangerous, right? From from some people's perspective, probably Eugene's father, mostly. That's why people want to ban books. Yeah, exactly. That I mean, you know, that's it right there. As she lives her life in university and goes through the years, she ends up moving off campus from the dorm and into a bigger apartment. And the only way that her and Sora can afford it is to bring in this roommate. And so they invite this woman named Misaki, who is Japanese and living in Korea, and I think has a deeper understanding of the culture, at least the, the diversity of the culture, than Yujin does. But they, Eugene and Sora just don't treat her well. She's just a source for them to be able to live where they want. But she becomes pretty essential to Min after Eugene dies to try to unravel the life she lived. And one of the things she talks about with Min is this concept of Han. Can you share what this means? They were in a conversation really about Korean culture when she tells him about it. Of course, interestingly enough, Han is kind of this term that is defined as something that can't be defined. But as Misaki defines it to Min, and I think from her perspective, we don't get this in the book, but she senses that he is kind of ill at ease, right? That he's kind of in Korea and he doesn't quite know why and he's trying to figure his stuff out, but things aren't panning out exactly as he hoped. Um especially after the death of his girlfriend, who he thought was kind of perfectly happy, but now he's being told that she's, she's taken her own life. The way she describes Han, I think in an effort to help him make sense of himself, right, is because Korea is a, is a country that has been kind of, has been colonized, has been kind of co-opted in, in so many ways, and is still divided, right, and still has kind of American army bases and all of that stuff, that there's this sense of, of real kind of despair, right, or kind of unresolved angst, I think is probably the best way to put it. And more importantly, that Han can be transferred kind of generationally, right, so kind of generational trauma, right? And so I think in, in that moment, she's offering that up as as a potential explanation as to why he might be feeling the way he is and trying to kind of resolve the reasons that he might not feel like he quite belongs. And that, and that term is kind of, I think, you know, it's, it's something that 
there's still a lot of debate about the term itself and whether it means what it means. But I, I think in that context, I wanted Misaki, it was important to me that she was someone who is like men in the sense that they're both foreigners, that they are both seen as outsiders in Seoul. But she's someone who kind of has embraced that role as an outsider and is very much at home, whereas he kind of is still hoping to, to be seen as an insider. But I think, and of course, she's also the one that knows this stuff about Korean culture. Min doesn't know. And so that was important to me that, you know, she's she's a character that kind of teaches him. I mean, in an ironic moment, she's teaching him about Korean culture and trying to maybe explain to him why he might not feel that things are resolved or as they should be. Yeah. I mean, she's basically saying, you know, Han is your most basic desire being crushed. And it's both historical and personal. And when you take that back to Eugen, you know, she lived under the specter of her father's power and his word. And her parents moved to Seoul when she did. Also, her dad got promoted within the military and they start to understand more about her life a little bit through nefarious ways. Her dad's very powerful. He can spy on her if he wants and she goes back to visit them in, in their home, which is, you know, it's still in Seoul, but in a completely different neighborhood. And she has a conversation with her mother and her mother's, you, you kind of don't know if her mother's like trying to be compassionate and sensitive and trying to understand, or if she's just trying to get information from her. And her relationship with her parents is so fraught because she's doing everything they want. And so it's like, she's getting the good grades. She's doing all that, but she's also taking film class and having a relationship with her female roommate. And so it really brings up the question. I mean, of course there's the the boundaries of culture and what they felt was acceptable, especially because he was well known. Um, but just like how much power do your parents have over you? And we really saw that in her. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, probably like most teenagers across cultures that are in her position, do what they do, do what she does, which is, okay, I'll, I'll kind of excel and achieve in the areas that I'm being asked to achieve in, in the hopes of gaining my freedom, right. Or in the hopes of having my lead let out a little bit. Right. So if I get straight A's, then my parents can't tell me you know, to come home at, during curfew, or if I get the great job, then, you know, my parents can't, you know, judge me for X, Y, and Z. And ultimately I think the hope, if you play that out until the end, the end is like, if I do all of this, my parents will love me. Right. And my parents will accept me, which is kind of something totally different than, than what it is. But I, I think if you follow it to that conclusion, that's where you end up. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the mother because that's certainly the way I was hoping, hoping it would come off is, is that we, like Eugene, are very unsure of where, while her mother is certainly not like her father, she is also not kind of obviously an ally and will defend her in every kind of situation. So she's kind of, uh, you know, it's a real balancing act where she's trying to appease her parents and gain their respect and also gain their love and make them proud while also kind of hoping that the, all these things she achieves will gain her this sense of freedom. The, probably the only thing that her parents aren't really comfortable giving her. Yeah. And her parents don't know about men either. So it's not like um, a relationship with a boy. I mean, it would probably be better in their view, but it still wasn't what they want. And Min ends up meeting them because so much of the book is really him sort of um, un unfurling and trying to find out who Eugene really was. Because when the book opens and she's committed suicide or believed to have committed suicide, he's trying to really figure out why and who she was. And it brings up this question of when you discover things about someone that you had a relationship with that turn out to be contrary to what you think you experienced, who is that person? It, it changes your memory. And that question about is like, do you really want to know? And we have so many faces as human beings. And if you 
start digging into someone and find out all these new things, the essential question is, does that change your relationship? Well, I would say that was the one theme that I was aware was in the book when I was, when I was first drafting was that the idea that you just brought up of perception and truth. And if we perceive a, a partner or a loved one or a friend to be a good person, and we know them, we've seen it with our own eyes, we've talked to them, we've witnessed them do things. And from all of the, our perceptions, we've deduced they're a good person. And then we find out that this person maybe wasn't so good or that they aren't so good. And I think this often happens when people die. Usually we find out that, you know, this person wasn't so great, but sometimes it's, it's kind of when they're still around. And really, I think that's the idea or the question that the book is, is kind of interested in exploring. And how do we as human beings, because what, I guess what that means, right, is that if we can't trust our perceptions, like what do we have left? If we can't know a person and be in love with them or dating them or be friends with them, or married to them, and we thought it was one thing and it's entirely not, does that mean that kind of everything we, we witnessed wasn't true? I, and I mean, I think you, you have the million dollar question, which is like, and I think the answer that you kind of gave, which I'm inclined to, to give as well, is it can be both, right? That the person can be one way with someone and another way with someone else. And that we, I think we probably don't want to think this because it, it's upsetting, but that people contain multitudes, right? That they that they are thorny and complex and they can be loving one minute and terrible the next. And things probably even out in a way where we can deduce the good people from the bad people. But that moment of realization of, I thought I knew someone and I'm realizing that maybe I don't, or I don't know the whole person, maybe that's the best way to put it. I think that can be a really jarring, jarring and upsetting experience. Um, and that's certainly the experience that Min has throughout the, the whole book is, I thought that things were one way and it's turning out uh, at every turn that, that I was wrong. Right. And that I thought we were happy. I thought she was happy, but she wasn't at all. Yeah. And I think it, I think what it points to also, and maybe primarily, but I'm not sure is that we don't know ourselves that it's so hard to be human, that being an affirmative, decisive person all the time is kind of not what the human journey is about. Yeah, definitely. But of course, we're, we're always trying to present ourselves as, as such, whether that's cultural or social. And I think one other question, if it's not giving away too much, that's that Eugene really wrestles with is like, did she squander this chance she had at life. I mean, she had all the privileges, she had all of the support, she had all of the status. And by pursuing the art and pursuing a girlfriend, did she squander that? And was it worth it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something that the book is, is maybe trying to get at. I don't know if she, she does mention, you know, and I think the moment that you're referencing is she references that she has had a good life, right? That she's from one angle, you could say she's lucky. She has parents that love her. They've paid for her to go to these, these schools. They've supported her. They've, you know, they have a house, they're married. There are all sorts of privileges that she enjoys. But I think from another perspective, you would say, no, well, that isn't privilege at all, right? That's that's torture. That's abuse. Like that's you know to be in that household and to and to to work the way that she had to work um, under the pressure that she was under wasn't at all. So I I don't know. I mean, her for me, it's her story is is a tragedy, right? It's one that could it could have been avoided if one or two things had gone differently, right? Whether just a conversation or someone seeing something or someone saying something. So that's, that's kind of the real takeaway for me. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? I'm going to read a passage from Michael Knight is one of my favorite short story writers. And he published a collection called evening land. He teaches at the university of Tennessee. And this short story is called Jubilee. I, when I teach writing, I always tell my students, I like stories that have a vibe and I feel like he captures vibe really well. That's not really a technical term, but, and I, I'd like to think that he kind of 
in reading his stories, I picked up on how to kind of make that happen in my own fiction. Such is the case with Dean and Kendra Walker. Here is Kendra in the kitchen, slicing hearts of palm while Dean prepares the grill out on the wharf. Friday, late September, one has the impression that these long evenings will last forever, but already night is settling in by 7.30 and it's cool enough that Kendra will drape a cardigan over her shoulder when she goes out. While he waits for his wife to join him, Dean drinks single malt and pitches a tennis ball into the bay for their yellow lab popcorn to retrieve. From where she stands, Kendra can look out over the great room and through the windows along the porch, the lawn with its Bermuda grass and mossy live oaks, then the boardwalk and the seawall and the beach nearly covered at high tide, a row of wharves reaches into the bay, all those hammocks and Adirondack chairs, all those white boats suspended on their lifts across the water, a blazing sunset, that marvelous cliche. Do you want to say anything more about it? No, I think that's it. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, so I'll, I'll read a section. So I had mentioned earlier that I wrote the first draft of the book. I wrote it in first person. And at some point much later on than I would have liked in my revisions, I decided that I needed to switch it to close third. And one of the reasons is that first person was feeling a little bit claustrophobic and I was having trouble describing, and this is just one of the troubles with first person, but it's also one of the the beauties of first person that everything is filtered through your character, right? So everything that they see kind of the reader sees, and they're the only ones that you hear from. But in this section, when I switched it to third, there were all these things that I could do with with psychic distance, meaning how far out you want to zoom out and how far in you want to zoom in. And so this is one of those passages that I was able to really kind of edit because I had switched it to close third. Before the sun crests the mountains, before the streetlights power down, before stray cats slink under chain link fences, there is a fleeting moment, a blue-gray spasm that grips soul, paralyzing time. Those who are lucky, the early dog walkers, the monks, the ever optimistic fishermen, the curious travelers flying from Bangkok to Sapporo, hoping to catch a glimpse of North Korea from the window of their 747, can imagine the city as limitless, untethered from time. They could see what had come before, royal palaces, stone pagodas, trolley cars, and telegraph lines. They could bear witness to what lay beneath their feet, what towered over their heads, all that had been erased would be made visible to them, if only for a second. It was at this precise moment in time that Min stepped onto the field in his athletic shorts and t-shirt, unaware he'd missed his chance to imagine. He'd been too busy tying his sneakers and stretching before the game to notice anything. Is there anything else you want to say about that? No, it's just my first time reading it, so that was fun. (laughs) Where do you write? Uh, I write in my office uh, at my desk and also anywhere I can. (laughs) I'm not particular. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Yard work. I I will always make an excuse to go out in the yard and do something. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, That would be my wife. How have you dealt with rejection? Profusely. (laughs) There's been a lot of rejection. I don't know. I mean, you know, I just try not to take, you can't take anything too personally and you just got to keep pushing through. And, um, you know, you, you learn early on if, if you're in any of the arts, like rejections is part of the game. So you just got to get it out of the way early and often. And what is your favorite word? This, I, I had to think about this a little bit. I, th- I think I settled on dusk. I like the word dusk. I like the way it sounds, the way it feels to say, um, and, you know, this is very me, but I also, I also enjoy dusk because it's not quite night and it's not, you know, it's a little of the in-between, not day, not night, just that, that moment, right, where the sun's below the horizon, but it's still kind of light out. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Missy. This was amazing. I'm such a huge fan of the podcast, so it's just really a dream to be on here.
If you like today's show with Soon Wiley, author of the novel When We Fell Apart, check out my interview with Adam Johnson, author of the story collection Fortune Smiles. He talked about trusting his obsessions, writing about North Korea, and coming home one day from school to find his entire house packed and his parents announcing their divorce. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 360 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Zena Hashem-Beck, Charles Baxter, Elizabeth Strout, and Lydia Yuknovich. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.